Turn your Bibles, please. John chapter 8. We'll have our scripture reading, then we'll dismiss the kids. But let's read together. Or I'll read, you listen, but follow along. John chapter 8 is where we are. Verse 12 is where we picked up from last week. We go through the books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So we're in John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel account in the New Testament. His Bible's in the back. Um, I'll have the verses up, but great if you bring your Bible each week. And if not, if you don't have a Bible, take one of those in the back for you. That's our gift to you. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying... I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I, where I'm going, but you, you don't know where, uh, where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people are true, is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasuries he taught the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them, I am going away and you will seek me. And you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you. That you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. Verse 27, they did not understand that I had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. Then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me, and He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Verse 30 to close. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. May God add a blessing to the reading and preaching of His Word this morning. So, we're in John 8, that's where we'll stay. Kids, you're dismissed to Children's Church. Um, there'll be classes for our children in the back, kind of age appropriate. Bibles, if you need one, grab that as well. And let's look at John chapter 8 together, okay? So let me just put this quickly in context from last week. As you remember, John chapter 7 tells us that Jesus left Galilee, which was north of Jerusalem. And shortly after his brothers left Galilee and went to Jerusalem, it says in John chapter 7, verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he, Jesus, also went up, not publicly, but in private. So they're in Galilee, Jesus and his brothers. They go down to Jerusalem, and Jesus waits a little bit. His time was not yet, and then he follows his brothers up to Jerusalem. Now, in the scripture, when you read up to Jerusalem, even though it was south, they say up to Jerusalem, it's not has to, it doesn't have to do with direction, it has to do with elevation. Jerusalem is up high, so they were going up to Jerusalem, okay? That was free. So Jesus, Jesus now is in the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, one of the mandatory feasts. So the place is jam-packed with Passover, uh, excuse me, Tabernacle, uh, Booths, Feast, pilgrims from all over the region. And so the place is jam-packed with Jewish people. Uh, for the celebration, and those, even Gentiles that have come out who are following Yahweh, the God of Israel. They were celebrating this feast called Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. They were celebrating God's faithfulness and God's provision. Not only was it the end of the year of the crops and the harvest, they were celebrating that, but it was also a celebration reminding them of the 40-year wandering that they did in the you know, in the desert before they went to the promised land. So this feast, which we saw last week, has all kinds of symbols uh, physical symbols reminding them of how God was so good to them. 
not only in this time of harvest, but also in this wandering experience. The Jewish people, as we mentioned, built temporary booths or tabernacles made of palm branch. They lived in it for a week to remind themselves and their children of God's faithfulness. Each tabernacle, each booth was really a, a foreshadow of the coming of Jesus and his incarnation. John 1.14, Jesus tabernacle, he booth, he dwelt among us. They would hold fruit in one hand and palm branches in the other and wave it as, as they worship kind of the faithfulness of God in his harvest and, and the wandering faithfulness as well. It was a symbol, a reminder of God's faithfulness. They had a water ceremony. We saw that last week. And it was pointed to this faithfulness of God when God instructed Moses to strike the rock in the desert, in a dry, hot desert. And water gushed out and God provided for his people. It reminded them, too, this water ceremony during this Feast of Tabernacles, that God would send forth his spirit. His spirit would be poured out, this eschatological end times experience of God pouring out his spirit in the Messianic age and even in the end times. And it was at, at that moment when this water ceremony was going on, the symbolic outpouring of water in the ceremony, that Jesus stands up in verse 37, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Chapter 7, verse 37 and 38 and 39, he says, and he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So you see all this symbolic pouring of water, the provision of Moses to the water on the rock, this outpouring of the spirit. And then Jesus stands up and says, listen, this all points to me. This all points to me. I am the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. That was one ceremony, the water ceremony during the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one symbolic symbol. But there's another one we're going to look at today. Okay, another wonderful festival, physical, symbolic thing that is going on that's going to point to the reality of who Christ is. So that's where we're at. So John, if you're following along, uh, I got an outline for you. You could see I spent a lot of time on it. That was a joke. The illumining light. The collaborating witnesses, the separating indictment, it just flowed today. It just flowed. The vindicating disclosure. So if you can't get all that right now, that's okay. We'll get back to that. So let's look at number one. We'll follow this text, the illumining light. Look down at verse 20 if you have a Bible. John chapter 8, verse 20. Let me just point something out before we move forward. These words, just what we're going to talk about, everything that Jesus is saying, these words, see that? He spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The hour of his death, the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of his glorification on the cross and resurrection and ascension had not come yet. So when you go back up to verse 12, it says Jesus spoke. Keep that in mind. He's speaking in the treasury. You say, well, does that mean anything? It means a lot, okay? It means a lot. Understand that the temple was set up with several uh, sections within the temple worship, okay, in the Jewish temple. When you first walked into the temple mount, there was what they call the court of the Gentiles. Non-Jews would come seek Yahweh, seek the God of Israel, and they went into their own court, court called the court of the Gentiles. They weren't allowed into the inner court or into the, the outer, um, excuse me, inner temple courtyard. They had to stay outside. Of the, of the main court area. Then after the court of the Gentiles, what was called the court of the woman, or the women. It was there in the court of the women, next to the court of Gentiles, you move further into the temple, that the treasury was found. I don't know why it was there, but it was there. In this treasury, there were 13 treasure boxes, with 13 treasure chests. Each one had this trumpet-like, what they call the trump or the, the shofar chest. It looked like a shofar a trumpet, where it was round at the bottom and, and you know, narrow at top, and they would drop coins in each one of these treasure chests. And they were all designed in the court of the women, in the treasury, for different aspects of worship. So one coin box was for, let's say, upkeep of the temple. One was for the priests. One was for the animal sacrifices. You would come, and you would put money in, and that would be like, sort of like the tithe and offering if we had a box in the back, Okay. The last couple were what they call free will offerings. If you had money left over after you went through these treasure chests, these shofar chests that look like trumpets, you would give a love offering, okay? So very important. In fact, if you remember in Mark 12 and Luke 21, that was the place where Jesus was with the, 
with teaching and he heard the coins from the widow's mite or the copper coin. And he points out, you see that woman? She's dropping in the very little that she has. The, the only thing she has. You know, here's all the rich people making a lot of noise. They're dropping in this shofar chest where clinging in the clinging of sound. Look how much money. I mean, this woman came with two small copper coins. Same thing. In the treasury, in the court of the women. Now, what's really cool about this place is that there was this water ceremony, which we looked at last week, and then there's what's called the illumination of the temple. You may be saying, why am I going through all this? You'll see. It's called the illuminating of the temple. It was, a, it was part of the feast and the celebration of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So inside this treasury, the court of the women, there's these giant candelabras or these giant torches that uh, historians say there was ladders that were, they were so tall that you have to have a ladder to climb up. And on top was these giant bowls. Bowls held 65 liters of oil, about 17 gallons of oil on these big candelabras, giant ones, ladders. They used to, in fact, it says, the historian says they would send the young priest up there. You know, I don't want no young, you know, I don't want no old guy going up like me, you know what I mean? Bad hips going up there, he'll fall down and get hurt. So they would send young guys. And they would use priests' outer garments cloth, they would rip the cloth from the priest's garments, and they would use that as wicks, the belts and, and the, um, the outer garments of the priest, they would use it actually as a wick. In what's called the Mishnah, it is the ancient oral tradition of the Jewish people, it says that on the first night of the feast, and, and there's other places in, in Jewish history that says it happened every night of the feast, after the sun was down, after the sun went down, the great lamps, these giant candelabras, four of them were lit. The flames would just burst into the dark sky and illuminate not only the entire temple, but it says, some people saying up to a quarter, maybe half, of all of Jerusalem. We're talking major light. Lamps uh, were meant to recall, and it was part of the ceremony where they would light these lamps to recall the pillar of fire. And the pillar of cloud that accompanied the people in their wander, wandering. If you remember the story from, uh, from the Old Testament. There was this cloud that appeared on the day when the people left Egypt. And they, and they got out of slavery. And they, this cloud stood between the Israelites and the armies of the Egyptians that wanted to kill them. On the night that they crossed the Red Sea. It kept them. This, this, this pillar of cloud, this pillar of fire kept them from being attacked. It guided them through the wilderness. This was their celebration, remembering God's pillar of cloud, pillar of fire that protected them and guided them. And again, the Mishnah says this about the ceremony that's happening. It writes this, ancient, ancient history. It says, pious people of men of great deeds would dance before them with lit torches in their hands and says before them words of songs and praises. And the Levites would play flutes and harps and cymbals and trumpets and, and countless musical instruments upon the steps which descend into the women's court, corresponding with 15 songs in the Psalms. And the Levites would stand with their musical instruments praising the Lord. It's a, it's a wonderful time. The evening has come. The band is rocking. They're playing. They're singing. They're lighting and remembering the pillar of fire, remembering the cloud that brought them out of slavery into freedom, into the promised land. It was in that place. It was in that temple. Maybe with the lights glowing and shining. Maybe they just put the lamp out because it was the last day of the feast, we're told in John seven thirty seven. Whether it's flaming or it's just put out, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. You know, I, I don't know when exactly, but I can almost see the feast is over because that's the last day of the feast. John 7, 37 is the last day. John is, John is uh, uh, the, the feast is over. Jesus had just pronounced, I am the living water. I can almost see them putting out all these lights and Jesus looking at them out going, you know what? I am the light of the world. Maybe he pointed to a lid, I don't know. But I am the light of the world. This is the second I am statement that Jesus makes with a predicate. I am the bread of life, he said earlier. Now he's saying, I am the light of men. I am the light of the world. 
I say he added I am, ego and me, it, it, it means, well, we'll get into that. It's, just, it's a statement that he's making, but I think Jesus, we'll see in a minute, I think he alludes to the I am statement and what that means in other areas. We'll see that today. But here he's saying it with the predicate. He's saying, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Remember in John chapter 6, Jesus steps into the boat of his very frightened, scared disciples, and he says, I am. It's a clear reference. It goes way back to God's self-expression, Exodus chapter 3. Moses said to God, God tells Moses, you're going, to, you're going back to Pharaoh. You're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to be used of me to let my people go so that they may worship me. And he says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What am I going to say? God said to Moses, tell them, I am. I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people, God speaking to Moses, I am sent you. I am the self-existing one, the one who exists independently, eternally, unchangeably, all that he always was and is, will always will be, I am. Jesus throughout the New Testament, especially John, has made several claims pointing back to Old Testament and saying, I am that person, I am that reality. In chapter one, he said, I am the true and better Passover, the true lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it says in John one. In John two, it says that Jesus is the true and better temple where the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Chapter three, Jesus is the better and true serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. John 4, he's the better place and the true place of worship. John 5, he's the true and better Sabbath rest. John 6, he's the true and better Moses. For Moses gave him manna daily. Jesus is the bread come down from heaven. John 7, we saw he's the absolutely miraculous water that was poured out in which the Spirit of God will come. And here in John 8, He's the true and better light of the world. He's the true and better cloud from heaven. The Jewish people knew exactly what he was talking about. You see, light is used throughout the Old Testament. It's steeped in Old Testament allusions pointing to Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel. They were trained to sing Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 119, your word is a lamp. To my feet, a light to my path. Proverbs 6, the word of God, the law of God is a light to guide the path of those who cherish instruction. Psalm 44, light is Yahweh in action. The prophet Isaiah in 49.6 says, a great light has come. That the servant of the Lord has appointed us a light to the Gentiles. That he might bring what? God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Light is steeped in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 60, very interesting, and Revelation 21, we get to the end of, of the book of the Bible, Revelation 21 and Isaiah 60. The coming eschatological age, the age in which Jesus comes and everything is restored, perfect shalom is restored, there'll be no moon, no sun. Why? Because Jesus will be light to the new heavens and new earth. You see what Jesus is saying? Family, I want you to see this. He's in this temple court. And these wonderful and beautiful illusions is that he's the fulfillment of these things. His announcement in this context would have sound outrageous to the Pharisees who rejected him. He is going so much further than any other religious figure claiming enlightenment or some explanation or some sort of instruction Jesus is making it clear. Jesus is making it clear and and claiming to be the illumining light of God himself. He's saying, do you remember that light? Do you remember the pillar of cloud? Do you remember the pillar of fire? Do you remember the pillar that came down, the Shekinah glory in the wilderness? Do you remember the fire and the cloud that kept you protected from the Egyptian army? And and do you remember how it protected you? Do you remember that, the Shekinah glory? I am that. That's who I am. 
the very presence of God. He is the Shekinah cloud that the people followed to the promised land that kept them protected. I am the enveloping glory of God that filled the tabernacle. You need to see that this morning. In fact, in 1 Kings 8, if you read that, when the glory cloud came down, they were all rocked off their boots. They couldn't stand because the place was filled with God's glory. And Jesus says, I am. All that sacrifice, all that, excuse me, that what's going on in that temple, as you remember the cloud, you remember the fire, I am he. The word became flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Notice what he says too. He says, I am, see that? He says, I am the light of what? The world. I am the light of the whole world, reserved only for Yahweh, the creator, who said, let there be light, Genesis 1-3, and there was light. He's not come just for Israel. He has not come just for the lost sheep of Israel. He says, I am light of the entire world. And then look at the immediate effect, he says. Whoever, you want to underline that, whoever follow me, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See that? The light that produces life, just like Jesus, the bread of life. If you walk with him, he says, you will walk in the light. In him, John said in 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcame it. Jesus says, listen, only those who follow are delivered, who see the light, who can walk in the light, who enjoy the light. We've already seen in John 3 that men would rather love darkness than come to the light. That is just unbelievable. I don't know how else to say it. It's not that men are lost in darkness or they can't find their way out of darkness or they're confused in darkness. It says men loved darkness rather than come to the light. How do you participate in this light? How do you get benefit? Jesus says, follow me. It's present. Participle means continually. Continue to follow me. That's what he's saying. He, he, he's saying this is not about your just raising your hand one Sunday. This is about wholehearted discipleship, not some casual adherence. We have this crazy notion that we can come to faith in Christ and do what we want. Now, I'm not saying doing makes you say. I'm not saying working towards your salvation in any way will save you. There's nothing you can do. You come with nothing. You come with your sin. He gives you the righteousness, Right? But when genuine faith has given birth, when there's a new birth, when there has been a, a, a real reconciled relationship with God following Jesus, follows that. It's the outcome of that. What does it mean to follow? Following Jesus means coming under his authority. Recognizing he's Lord, you're not. And the followers of Jesus says, don't walk in darkness. Think about the original, think about the first hearers. Remembering that their forefathers wandered in the desert and without the light, without the cloud, they wouldn't be able to move. And Jesus is using that imagery and saying, follow me and you'll have the light of life. They walked around in the desert. They, they didn't stumble. There was no confusion. They just said, when the cloud goes, we go. The pillar of cloud by day, the fire at night, we move when they move. Men and women, they're in darkness. They've been dark and they can't see. And Jesus says, I am the light of life. Now, just look at quickly at chapter 9. Because he's going to be in the temple all the way till we get to chapter 9. And look what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man, what? Blind from birth. Been dark his whole life. Family, Jesus dispels the darkness of our hearts. Jesus Christ alone brings the light of salvation to this broken, sinful, rebellious, cursed world. In the darkness of the lie, he is the light of truth. In the darkness of our rebellion, he is the light of wisdom. In the darkness of our sin, he is the light of perfection. To the darkness of our mourning, he is the light of joy. 
and to the darkness of death. He is the light of life. That's what he's saying. Jesus picks up this theme of, of wilderness wandering and proclaimed for all those who would follow him that they will not walk in darkness. But they will have the light of life to anyone familiar with the Feast of Tabernacles, to anyone familiar with the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. Jesus was identifying himself absolutely unwaveringly to the God of the Tabernacles. The one who provided, the one who led them, the one true God, the illumining light. Look at the collaborating witnesses. We talked about this before in chapter 1 and 5, but look there, verse 13. So the Pharisee said to me, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony, therefore, is not true. In the Old Testament, as you know, Deuteronomy, I believe it's 19, it says that a witness shall not suffice against a person for anything, any crime, any wrongdoing, unless there is at least two witnesses, two to three witnesses. And although God doesn't need a witness, he doesn't need us to say, all right, well, I agree with God, therefore it's true. But he does use this language to, to show forth the gospel and to, uh, to establish its validity and truth before us. Now, John chapter 5, Jesus did say, I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And they think, we got him now. He's bearing testimony about himself. If you remember in John 5, he used several collaborating witnesses. He talked about the witness of the work and the words of the Father. He talked about John the Baptist. He talked about the Scriptures bearing witness with him. So there was a different context. And now all of a sudden, they want to try to catch Jesus. They want to try to trick him. Like, you're bearing witness to yourself. You know the Old Testament. It says... Unless there's more than one witness, it's not valid. As if trying to trick God's a good idea. I don't know. But let me ask you this question. Let's say you commit a crime. A heinous crime. Okay? Serious crime. And you know what? You are guilty. But you're also a really good liar, and you're wicked. And when the case is getting ready to be brought before the courts... And they were getting ready to try you. And they have an eyewitness. He, he, he not only put you at the scene of the crime, but he saw you commit the crime. What would you like to see happen to that witness? Let's say your name is Corleone. You would want to eliminate the witness. That's what you'd want to do. And you know what? Turn the key, boom. The car blows up. Or maybe, maybe, you don't, maybe you can't get to the witness, but you want to threaten the witness. I get that, of course, from Godfather 2. Frank Pandolini, he's, he's testifying against Michael. They can't get to him. He's covered by FBI. What do they do? They bring the guy's brother in. Like, in other words, do the right thing. He goes free. If not, we're going to kill him too. So you want to get rid of the witness. Number two, you could discredit the witness. You could say, you know what? He's a liar. He or she's been lying all life. In fact, there's seven people that can tell about a lie. In fact, they lied in court before. I've discredited that witness. You could do that too. Or third, you know what you can do? You could catch them or, or somehow on some technicality, you could say, you know what? Uh, wasn't read the rights or some sort of technicality and you want to dismiss the case. Do you know that all three of those things actually happen? They want to kill Jesus. Stomp him out. He's pointing things out we don't want to know. We're guilty, and we don't want to know we're guilty. They tried to kill him. They will kill him, but when his father's timing is right. They also tried to discredit him. We saw that last week. Sometimes they're like, you think you know the law? We'll tell you about the law. Who should you pay taxes to? And they try to discredit him. And here, they're trying to throw the case out because of technicality. Really? Oh, who's your source here? He says in verse 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from. I have a greater source of knowledge. I know where I came from and where I'm going. You don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You don't have, an, you don't have a clue. They, they're still in this courtroom, just, you know, uh, justifying courtroom, and it's like, you're, you're, there's no one here. There's no one here justifying or any witness but, but you. And here is Jesus. Think of the, the ironic 
platform or the ironic situation is in, the light of the life of men is standing before him. The Holy One of Israel in flesh and bones. And they're like, uh, I don't know how legal this is. He says, my testimony is true. Alitis, meaning honest and, and, and genuine. I know my divine origin. I know where I'm coming. I know where I'm going. You don't know where I've come and you don't know where I'm going. I mean, who else is more qualified as a witness if not our Lord Jesus Christ? Who is more qualified as a witness who has first-hand knowledge of heavenly things? Do you see the relevance? <laughs> if Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, there is no one that could bear testimony and witness about God or to the things about man, what we need and what's required of us, than the one who's come down from heaven. That's what he's saying. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Here Jesus is collaborating his testimony by stating that his testimony is impartial. You judge outwardly. You judge according to the flesh. You judge from, from uh, earthly standards, sinful, broken, twisted, earthly standards. I judge not that way. This doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't judge at all. We already saw that in John 5. He will judge the world. But certainly, for sure, he did not come the first time for condemnation of the world, but to love the world and save the world. Verse 16, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. When he judged people, it was righteous, it was perfect, it was truth, and it was in coherence with and dependent upon his Father. Family, that claim alone is off the chart. When I judge, it's exactly how the Father judges because I and the Father are in such union, in such unity, that when I judge, He judges. Make no mistake about it. By insisting that the Father and Him are in cahoots or in, 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 in union with the Father, He's in union with the Father, He's claiming equality with God. And finally, look what He says. The Lord Jesus points out that the final analysis, His testimony is not going to stand alone. Even though he could, he could validly say so, he collaborates with the Father. He satisfies the Scripture's requirements of the law. There are two or three that give bear witness. Look at verse 17. In your law, which I, I stopped there for a minute. I'm like, why would Jesus say that? In your, not our law, in your law. Talk about the law of Moses. I think Jesus just wants to separate himself from these hypocritical, false judging people. In your law, kind of a shot. It is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. There's the word I am again. I think it points to, the, to his deity. It adds gravity and, and grandeur to his statement. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And, and, and in, in, the, in the verb tense, it's continual. So Jesus is basically saying, I am the one who constantly bears witness about myself, and the Father is constantly bearing witness about me. And they retort back, look, verse 19. Let me go back. Can you go back to verse 19 for me? Verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Where is your father? That was a shot. I think that was a shot. So let's see. Your mom is a virgin girl. She's like 13 and never been married and she's pregnant. Really? Like who are you going to tell that story to? Who's going to believe that story? Where's your father? Who's your daddy in, in today's terms, right? Or at least 10 years ago. Who's your daddy? You don't even know who your father is. Is, Jack, is your father real? Verse 19. You know me. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. I'm like, who are you guys kidding? Leon Morris, wonderful commentary, wonderful conclusion. He says this. He called on God as witness to the validity of his claim. Since if Jesus really stands in the relationship to God, in which he says he does, then no mere man is in a position to bear witness. No human witness can authenticate a divine relationship. End quote. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I and the Father are so united. If you knew me, if you knew him, you would know me. If you really knew him, when I come on the scene, you would understand who I am. And you know what? If you love me and you understand who I am, then you could say, and we could say, you know the Father, but neither is true. To a religious Bible thumper, 
to someone who studies the scriptures intently, who may know almost all the Old Testament by heart, you don't know the Father because you don't know me. If you knew me, you would know the Father, but neither is true. Let that sink in. That's what he's saying. We could know this book inside and out and not know the Father and not know the Son. That's scary. That, that's scary. I mean, here is the bottom line. He's standing before them. The witness of the Father is made clear and their utter failure to see Jesus as the light of the world, to see Jesus as the embodiment of the glory of God meant they were unable to perceive and receive the witness of Jesus about the Father. They prided themselves in the Bible and yet they couldn't see. The separating indictment. So he said to them, sorry about that. He said to them, look at verse 21. I am going away and you will seek me. You will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, if you read that and you're like, what's that supposed to mean? I mean, he didn't mention nothing about killing himself. Actually, actually it is dripping in sarcasm, just so you know. It was dripping. In, they, they were mockingly implying to Jesus that he was going to go to hell. That's where he's going. I'm going, you cannot come. I'm going to hell. That's what they're, they're mocking him. That's what they're telling him. There's a man named Josephus. He's a Hebrew Jewish historian around Jesus' day. Very important work that he did and kind of gives us the insight of the culture of that day. It's, it's, he's an important writer of the day, at least from a, a historical standpoint. This is what he said about the religious thought of Jesus' day of the Hebrews and the Jewish people of that day. It says, the souls of those whose hand have acted madly against themselves receive the darkest place in hell. You gonna kill yourself? We're going to heaven, you're going to hell, so if that's where you know you're going, you must wanna just take your own life. In fact, Josephus says that it was so heinous back then that they would have not even public funerals for those who took their own life. So do you see what they're getting at? They're assuming that they're going to heaven. They're mocking Jesus saying, you must kill you, want to kill yourself because you're going to hell. This arrogant self-righteousness about them, they refuse to believe who he is and they're blaspheming him, mocking him, distorting his words. He responds, and he said to them in verse 23, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. Now, the word world could mean different things in Scripture. All of humanity, the physical world. What Jesus is talking about here is the world is that fallen conscious rebellion against God. It is this spiritual system of thought that rises itself against God. You're about the worldliness. You're about yourself you don't want nothing to do with God you reject God that's what you're about I'm not from that place Jesus is saying you are I'm not verse 24 I told you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins like really going to try to kill yourself no no you're you're from you're from the earth I'm from another place I'm from the realm of God and then he tells him I told you that you will die in your sins. Now, if you have a Bible and you like to write in your Bible, let me give you a little insight. The word he, in verse 24, is not there, okay? It's not in the original language. The uh, the interpreters put that in there so you have a better flow of the sentence. I wish they didn't. It says, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, okay? Okay? Sins, plural. First he said you will die in your sin, unbelief. Now he's talking plural. All the ugliness, all the various ways of rebellion that flows from unbelief. He says you will die in your sins. What does that mean? To die in one's sins means to die eternally separated from Christ. Separated from God without forgiveness. Death could mean, in scripture, physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death, okay? Physical, spiritual, and eternal death. The Bible's clear that sin brings death to the world. Adam and Eve sinned. They died spiritually. They were removed from the garden. They were separated from God. They brought physical death into the world. Paul, Romans 5. Listen to what it says. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam and Eve, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul goes on to write in chapter 5, but the free gift is not like the sin. For if because of one man's sin or trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, that's Jesus, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then Paul adds this statement. Now listen carefully. Therefore, as one trespass, that's one sin, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that's the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. Hear me carefully. Very important. There are two ways to leave this planet Earth when you die. Just what he said. Condemned, sin leads to condemnation, or righteousness that leads to justification. That's the only way. You may die in the Lord clothed in his righteousness, his perfect obedience imputed and counted to you. Not what you've done, what he's done for you. And then when you die, Revelation says, if you die in the Lord, he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Or you can die condemned and in your sins. To die in your sins means to die with the burden of one's sin upon oneself as a result to be forced to bear the penalty of sin for yourself, which is spiritual, physical separation from God. Physical death, separation of soul and spirit from the body. Spiritual death is separation from the soul, from the Lord. And then eternal death is eternal separation from God. How does one escape? How does one escape eternally separated in hell from God? Jesus makes it very clear. Unless you believe that I am. Egomai. I am. That's so important. Underline that. What he's saying, he's going back to Abraham, excuse me, to Moses. He's claiming full deity. He's going back to Exodus, back to Moses. Unlike the cults of our day who don't believe that Jesus is the I am incarnate. In fact, they knew exactly what he meant. They were so shocked they wanted to kill him. Verse 59, because he was blaspheming, calling himself God. They understood that. Now, why is that so important? Because if you're a true follower of Christ, you believe that Jesus Christ is the I am. But even more importantly, without believing in that, you die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am Yahweh, incarnate God, creator of the universe. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's grave important this morning, family. That Jesus entered into space and time as God incarnate, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross as the only sufficient substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, rose and ascended to the Father. Someday we'll return to reject the truth of who Jesus truly is. Jesus himself says you will die in your sins. He is the God, the Son the one true God who became flesh and dwelt among us. You have to have that right estimation. That's how important this is. He says, I am. And when you believe that he is the God he claims to be, then you have forgiveness of sin. Then you have atonement for sin. Then you have redemption for sin. Then you will not die in your sins. Please see that this morning. Verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said, just what I've been telling you, man. I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. I declare to the world that I have heard from him. He said, they didn't understand him. They weren't, they weren't hearing it, that he was coming from the Father. And I could almost hear, this is probably because I'm wicked, um, a little exhaustion in Jesus' voice. Who am I? <laughs> I mean, come on. How much do I got to tell you? That's probably me interpreting, but he's like, when God speaks, I speak. When I speak, God speaks. When I do my deeds, I do those deeds that God showed me to do. I and the Father are one. Even Nicodemus said, oh, Lord, we know you're from God because no one can do these miracles that you do. 
Jesus is just saying, listen, you have enough revelation. They did not understand. Family, I hope you understand today. We see the illumining light, the collaborating witnesses of the Father, the, the separating indictment, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. And finally, look at the vindicating disclosure. We'll, we'll hit this. Very important. One real verse we're going to look at, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. Then you will know that I am. Again, no he in the text. Then you will know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's perfection right there. Just so you know. Oh, Jesus never claimed to be perfect. He just did. Everything I do pleases God. Can you say that this morning? I know I can't. All right? <laughs> Thank you for your honesty, because that's true, right? As we say these things, many believed in him. We'll know next week that it's kind of spurious. It's not, uh, it's kind of sketchy belief, but Jesus makes it clear. Look, Jesus makes it perfectly clear that when the full disclosure of who he is will take place, when the glory, when his glory will be most fully revealed, when a son of man is lifted up. You see that? Christ's death, Christ's burial, Christ's resurrection, his glorification, his ascension vindicates. It, it, it gives evidence. It confirms everything he said about being the I am. When Jesus is lifted up in his Father's presence. So let's close by asking two questions. I'm going to ask you two questions this morning. Number one, I want you to see who Christ is. I want you to see that Christ is the great I am who died for your sins and rose from the dead because that is the way to have the light of life and the forgiveness, okay? So what does it mean? What does it mean when he says, the cross, if I'm lifted up, you'll see me for who I really am. First, I want you to know the cross of Christ and because of the cross of Christ, our stubborn and rebellious, hard-hearted, this, the hard-hearted will of man is healed, okay? Number one, our stubborn, our rebellious hard-heartedness will be healed when we look to the cross. James Montgomery Boyce made it very clear. Since a rebellious will is the major barrier to a reception of God's truth, and since it is only at the cross that the barrier is removed, it is therefore only at the cross that the light of God's revelation is enabled to illuminate the soul, end quote. Jesus mentions in, in John 3 about this being lifted up. Do you remember the story? He's talking to Nicodemus about being lifted up as a story from the numbers comes in. Nicodemus is like, um, uh, can I talk to you? And Jesus is like, you want to be born again? You, you, you have to be born of the flesh and of the spirit. You don't get it. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what. It's just like when Moses in the wilderness lifted up the pole with the snake on it. So too, when I am lifted up. When I am lifted up. In other words, Moses lifted up this pole and this snake pole in the wilderness because people were being bit by the snake and God says, I'll provide for you. I will heal your broken hearts. I will heal, heal your sniveling and crying and sin against me. Just look to the pole. And when they did, guess what? They were healed. We as people, rebellious and hard-hearted, if we look to Christ, We'll get a new heart, a healed heart. Okay, number one. Number two, the gospel, the cross, is the only way for the light of God. Listen, number two, lastly, listen to me. The gospel, the cross, is the only way for the light of God, for the glory of God to come to us. Second Corinthians 4. In their case, in the unbelieving's case, in the, those who are perishing in the dark, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They're in darkness to keep them from seeing what? The light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Kept them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Light, 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 light. You see, the events of the cross, the events of the gospel, the events of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus has been designed by God in such a way 
to reveal the glory, the supreme value, the bright, illumining light and excellence of Christ. That's why you come to the cross. It's where light shines. Glory is revealed. Beauty is seen. Joy is expressed and fulfilled in our souls. We look to the cross. It is designed to destroy the rebellion of our hearts, to destroy the work of the devil, to expose our sin, to shine the beauty and glory and incalculable worth of Christ. Let light shine to see the face and beauty of Christ. The gospel would not be good news if it did not reveal to us the light of life, the glory of Christ, that we would see it and treasure it. It is the glory of Christ that satisfies the soul. We have been made for Christ. Christ died for us in our place so that the illumining light of the glory of Christ will remove everything that our dark hearts have been holding on to. We'll remove everything that's in our way, which is our sin blocking us to God. God has come. The eternal God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He dwelt among us. We are under the right and just condemnation for our sins. But the light of life and the glory and the beauty and the forgiveness of God will come to us through the eternal God whose name is Jesus. When we trust him, when we love him, when we worship him, when we yield to him, when we love him as the great I am. He loves you, he died for you, he rose for you. Let's worship him. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for sending your son, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, truly God, a truly man, to bear our sin, to die in our place, to absorb the punishment that we deserve. When we embrace that, when we trust that, when we love him, when we yield to him, when we believe in him, we have the light of life and we will not walk in darkness. Father, please, may we see him, worship him, and treasure him this morning. He is the light of the world. We want to walk in his light. In Jesus' name.